This is the Consciousness Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Preston. Each episode, I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Susan Blackmore, who is a psychologist, a lecturer, and writer researching consciousness, memes, and anomalous experiences. She is a visiting professor at the University of Plymouth, as well as a TED Talk lecturer, blogger for The Guardian, and often appears on TV and radio. Her book, The Me Machine, has been translated into 16 other languages. Her other books include Conversations on Consciousness, Zen and the Art of Consciousness, and her latest one, Seeing Myself, The New Science of -of Out-of-Body Experiences. She also has the latest edition of her textbook, Consciousness and Introduction. We had a great conversation and covered out-of-body experiences, mind-body duality, or more accurately, monism, and much more. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Susan Blackmore. Dr. Blackmore, I appreciate you uh, at least taking the time to, to talk with me today. So I know a couple things we wanted to, to talk about, uh, out-of-body experiences, and maybe a couple things we'll expand there, especially with your, uh, your new book launching here in the States. Um, but maybe we could just begin by um, sharing a little bit about what your view of consciousness is. I mean, are, are you a mind-body duality person? Are you a physicalist? You know, what part does the brain play in consciousness? What do you see as consciousness? Is it an illusion? So I know it's a big topic, but maybe just a, an overview of, of what you think human consciousness is. Well, it's not what most people think it is, and it's not what it feels as if it is. Um, and I come at this from two directions, one from 40 years of studying <laughs> brain and neuroscience mm-hmm. and psychology, and the other from also 40 years of meditating every day. Um, so I'm interested in it both from the subjective point of view and the scientific philosophical point of view. The, the tempting feeling always is I'm in here, this is my physical body in a physical world, and I am some kind of a conscious me inside, and I'm in control of the body, and I have free will, and I make the decisions, and you know, I consciously decide to, um, I'm waving at you now, um, <laughs> consciously decide to wave my arm, and, um, and so on. That's how it feels, and it feels as though I'm looking out through my eyes at the world. Well, when you start to learn something about who or what a self could be, whether that's through intensive meditation or whether that's through studying what the brain does, it cannot be that way. That, of course, the, the idea that I described that's so, so tempting is, is uh, dualism in one form or another, that mind consciousness is something separate from the brain and the body. I don't think it can be. I don't think it makes sense. And most philosophers think it doesn't make sense either. And then everybody squirms hmm. around trying to get out of, of, of duality. Well, how? Some become materialists and say, well, the physical world is all it is, but then they can't really explain where consciousness comes in. Or they become idealists and say consciousness comes first. Well, then they can't explain why we seem to live in the physical world and you and I could agree that we're talking down a phone line to each other. So Mm -hmm. I am what I would say a neutral monist. I am not a dualist. I think there can only be one kind of stuff in the universe and I don't know what it is. I am perplexed. And this is why I sit in meditation and go, what? <laughs> Quite a lot of the time. Uh, or of, of an evening, you know, I smoke a joint, sit there looking at, at, the, at the ceiling and going, well, what is it? <laughs> so my view on consciousness is not that I have a, a, a very powerful theory about it, but it's more that I reject most of the theories going around. Most people in consciousness studies 
talk about consciousness as though it arises from the brain. And that is kind of a, a hidden kind of dualism. They're treating it as something separate from the brain. A lot of them are like that. A few, Dan Dennett included, most of the other illusionists, uh, as well as myself, would say, no, it's not something sort of mysterious that emerges from a brain. It just is somehow what brains do, but how? Ah, I don't know. The point of being an illusionist is to say we are deluded about the nature of consciousness if we think it's this kind of powerful stuff or process or thing or something that emerges from a brain. That's about as much I would, as I would stick my neck out and say in terms of what I think about consciousness. Okay, that makes sense. So is it, one, one question on that, um, do you think that consciousness then is a property of the physical brain or body? I think it's a property of the model of ourself that we built. And it's a very good question what you've asked that, because I certainly wouldn't say it's property of a brain, because although many, many people talk about conscious brains, it's not a brain that's conscious. It's a person going around talking and saying, oh, I'm conscious of this, that or the other. But I think I, I would take the view that when we say, you know, the classic, what is it like to be a bat? This is what many people use as their kind of ground, not definition, but grounding right. of what we mean by consciousness is what it's like to be. Well, they'd say, well, what is it like to be, to be you, Stuart Preston? Well, I would take a step further and say, no, there's nothing it's like to be a bat. It's what it's like to be the bat, the bat's own representation of a bat. And that will not be as complex as a human one with language. So I would say in the case of a human being, um, consciousness is a property, not of a brain, not of a body. It's a property of the story we tell ourselves about what we are. And that story is only very partly true and mostly false. <laughs> we're, back, we're back to delusions then. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. The, uh, and that kind of leads me to another, another question, uh, maybe a slip in here before we start talking about the out-of-body experiences. One of the things you had mentioned um, in an article I read I think in psychology today mentions that um, may, possibly we're only conscious when we're actually reflexively thinking about our consciousness or about ourselves. So as you mentioned this notion that it, you can't really know what it's like to be a bat, but you can maybe know what it's like to be a bat thinking about what it's like to be a bat. What do you want to, Tell us a little bit about this idea that maybe consciousness is something that is turned on and off like the light in a refrigerator. This is part of my, my illusionist theory, if you like. I spent a lot of time, and you'll have come across this in the consciousness textbook, where I, for years and years and years, I had my students asking themselves questions again and again and again. And the first question was, uh, am I conscious now? And this is a very interesting question because... I bet you, people listening now will be thinking, well, of course I am. Um, because until you really practice at it, every time you ask yourself, am I conscious now? You go, yes, of course I am. But now the second question that I began asking myself and the students did as well is, well, was I conscious a moment ago? Because you could often get, when you ask, am I conscious now? You get this weird sense of, where am I? Oh, yes, here I am. Yes, of course I am. And you start to wonder, well, what about a moment ago? And the more I've looked into this in experience, direct experience, the more it seems to me that it was very different a moment ago. And actually, there were a lot of things going on 
For example, if I do that exercise now, I can feel I'm holding a microphone in my hand. Uh, I can see my ha other hand waving about because I always wave my arms when I'm talking. I can feel myself sitting on this kneely stool I'm on. I can hear noises from outside and I'm actually looking at some trees waving in the breeze. Now, which of those was I conscious of? Well, in a way I'd say none because I wasn't really thinking about whether I was conscious of them or not, or I could say all of them, but they were all kind of separate. It was as though there was somebody, but it wasn't me being conscious of the trees outside and somebody, but it wasn't me being conscious of the seat. You know, it, the, what, where I get to from that is that every time we ask ourselves about our own consciousness, that is a particular special state we put ourselves into asking it. And then we jump to the conclusion that we were conscious all day long. And that gives us the idea, which I think is false, and Dan Dennett thinks is false, that if you look in a brain, you will find the conscious bits, that some bits of the brain are doing the consciousness work and others are the unconscious bits. And that is, I would say, false. And so would a very few other illusionists say it's false. And it overthrows completely the whole attempt to find the neural correlates of consciousness, which is a very popular strand of research in consciousness studies. Mm -hmm. And it makes you have to start right from the beginning, trying to think, well, what is this? Every time I ask, what is this? There is experience. And I don't know what it is, but I do know it's wrong to think of it as something kind of exuded by brains and exuded by particular bits of the brain that are the important consciousness ones. I I'm saying, basically, this mystery is an awful lot deeper than the most people admit. And we need to throw out a lot of our very easy assumptions before we can even begin um, to solve the mystery. Yeah, because it is almost a basic assumption, um, almost, almost ego-driven, um, to believe that we were conscious that whole time. And, and I had never even thought of this until I read your article, but I find it really fascinating and from my own experience and looking back, it does feel like consciousness or awareness is focused. It focuses on something and then it kind of recedes. And it almost seems like that plays into the idea that while we're sleeping, we have either, either we're not conscious or we have a different kind of consciousness going on, but we're not as aware maybe in, in the sleep states. So yes. Yeah, I would it's say pretty fascinating there. Um, two two things about that. Um, well, you talked about sleep, and of course, in lucid dreams, it feels as though suddenly I am there again, and as though mm -hmm. I am actually conscious in my dream, unlike ordinary dreams, which you know really you only your only experience is when you wake up and you think you remember them, and you can't really know what was going on. What interests me about that is that in lucid dreams, it feels as though I am conscious again. And we know that the self-processing parts of the brain, in particular around the temporoparietal junction and, and, and forward to the um, prefrontal cortex, um, are more active in lucid dreams than they are in ordinary non-lucid dreams. And this suggests that it is exactly how it feels. The brain is constructing a model of self that is much better, much more like the waking self in those kind of dreams than it does in most ordinary dreams where the self is a very peculiar um, thing and, and everything <laughs> is shifting and it's only when you wake up that you, you remember it. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. That does shed some good light yeah. on that. Okay, transition into the uh, out-of-body experiences because you have 
a new book coming out where you talk about out-of-body experiences. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, about the book and why you wrote it, what the focus is, and then let's talk a little bit about out-of-body experiences and, and possibly if, it, if it's associated uh, near-death experiences. So tell us about this, this awesome new book. Right. I'm not sure if it's awesome. Well, it was awesome writing it because in a way it's my life story, if you like. Um, it's called Seeing Myself. you had myself. an out-of-body experience. Yes, yes. It's right. called Seeing Myself, The New Science of Out-of-Body Experiences. And seeing myself in two, two ways, because in an out-of-body experience, you seem to see yourself in the sense of looking at your physical body as though you're not in it. Um, but also I end up with arguing that out-of-body experiences have a lot to tell us about consciousness and the self, that we can see more clearly what a self is um, through studying out-of-body experiences. Uh, yes, I did have one. And in a way, that's why I kind of laughingly say, well, this is the story of my life, because that experience, which mm -hmm. I had in 1970, when I was a 19-year-old first-year psychology student in Oxford, um, made me so convinced that my spirit had left my body and from there to believe in life after death and also to believe in telepathy and clairvoyance and psychokinesis and ghosts and poltergeists and everything you can imagine. I was just completely, you know, swept away by it. And I decided at that point I was going to become a parapsychologist and prove to all my closed-minded um, Oxford clever lecturers that, you know, they were materialist wrong and they were completely, you know, their ideas were wrong. Mm -hmm. And I embarked on many years of research. I did become a parapsychologist. I did my PhD. I got one of the first um, PhDs in Britain on parapsychology, but I never found any evidence for any paranormal phenomena. So I gave up on looking for paranormal phenomena because I, and I simply don't think they exist. Now, just because I can't find them doesn't mean they don't exist, but I can tell you I have done an awful lot of studying and, you know, and nothing of I have seen has ever convinced me. The evidence is appalling. Um, but people so want it to be true that they gloss over the, 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 uh, the, the faults in, in the evidence that's presented in all, in, in all the popular books. Just to briefly say something about the experience, mm -hmm. this happened in 1970. So this is before the term near-death experience had been um, invented. It's before all the stories about tunnels and lights and all of that stuff. But I did know a little bit about astral projection. That was the only context in which I had any idea of what might happen. But what did happen would now count as um, a full near-death experience. Bearing in mind the definition of a near-death experience is very difficult because not everybody's near-death. And then there are, you know, anyway, I wasn't near-death. I was just sitting in late at night, very tired. Um, and I started going down a tunnel and then a friend of mine asked me, I was with two other people and they were there the whole time. It lasted about two and a half hours. And one of them said, where are you, Sue? Which is a very strange question because I was sat there on the floor right in front of him listening to music, you know, Grateful Dead or something. Um, and um, in that question, I kind of, it was like we were talking about earlier about, you know, am I conscious now? It was like, where are you? Where, where am I? Oh, ah, ew. I'm on the ceiling and I can't, I can't explain, although anyone who's had this experience, and I bet a lot of people listening have, will know what I mean. It went from blurry sort of hallucinatory kind of weirdness and this tunnel and, and, and stuff to poo, totally clear. It's as though it was more real than, than real life, you know, it was re really stunning. Right. And, um, and from then on, I think that 
if it hadn't been for my friend asking me, you know, constantly questions, can you see anything else? Can you move? Can you get out of the building? Can, where can you go? I probably would have got scared like most people do uh, or worried or something and I'd have, it would have ended. But instead, he just kept on talking and I, I talked back and I could sort of faintly hear my own voice far away as I zoomed off, you know. <laughs> um, wow. And I traveled around the world for about an hour and I came back and had, then went away again and had various adventures and everything changed. I stopped being a, an alternative body, a um, parasomatic OBE, and it became a asomatic OBE where you, you just a kind of spot of awareness, it seems like, and you travel around. And then ultimately it turned into a mystical experience um, of oneness in which I totally wasn't anymore. There was just whatever is. And that was everything timeless. I mean, it sounds so cliched, but it was timeless, spaceless, but things happening, there being awareness, but not somebody's awareness. So all this was kind of like flung at me completely out of the blue as a young student. And of course, I didn't have a clue how to understand it. So the book yeah. describes that experience and then talks about the years in which I studied astral projection theory and auras and um, uh, lucid dreams and um, uh, sense of presence, um, all of these weird and doppelgangers and th these odd things. Um, and how in the end, at last, in the last sort of, well, this century really, the, 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 the turning point came very early this century when we start to understand how the self is constructed in the brain and why an out-of-the-body experience is a change in the construction of self in the brain. And nothing leaves the body, which became obvious to me after many years of research, nothing leaves the body, but this dramatic change in the sense of self, which I think is the heart of, um, you know, the people who explore the inner worlds and, and, um, and try to understand mystical experience and so on. And so that's why I think this odd experience of seeming to leave your body actually can take us right through from ordinary consciousness to understanding very, very far different states of consciousness. Yeah, so with, with the, uh, you mentioned the changes in the brain that happened during this out-of-body. Is that something that's been observed, or can you, can you expand on that? What do you mean by that? Right, well, the starting point was in 2002, when a Swiss neurosurgeon called Olaf Blanke was operating on an epileptic woman. He, it, she was such a, a difficult and severe case that they had to put subdural electrodes on her brain. Those are electrodes that are actually under the skin over the brain, they're actually touching the brain. And he could then stimulate different places um, in the, across the brain to find out where her epileptic focus was. And mm. found that when he stimulated a spot in the right temporoparietal junction, that is where the temporal lobe meets the parietal lobe, just as it sounds, um, temporoparietal junction or TPJ, mm -hmm. he could induce with a very slight current feelings of bodily distortion, arms and legs getting longer, which I've had actually in, in, in passing as God helmet, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> uh, strange bodily distortions, uh, floaty fl sort of feelings. And then with stronger current, a full out of body experience, she seemed to be looking down on, on her own body. So that was the starting point. And subsequently, lots of people have found corroborative evidence that it's a disturbance in the temporoparietal junction that is associated with having out-of-body experiences. Um, patients who have brain damage in that very specific area are more likely to have out-of-body experiences uh, than people who have it in a just, you know, very short distance away where they'll have different kind of experiences. Um, um, 
and the bodily distortions as well happen in the same place. Then if you do tests with ordinary people, not, not with brain damage or anything, where they are asked to imagine um, they're manipulating their own body or turning it around or something like that, you find there's particular activity in the temporoparietal junction, just the same. And then there are ways of inducing out-of-body illusions. They're not really exactly proper out-of-body experiences, but they feel very similar, um, which, which you can do um, with various tricks. And you find that the temporoparietal junction is, um, you can do it with virtual reality, for example, and you will find that the temporoparietal junction mm. is implicated there. So, you know, we're a long way from knowing exactly how it works, but I think we know now that it's to do with the body schema. The temporoparietal junction is, it's one of its jobs is to construct and control the body schema. The body schema is like the representation of your body. Where are my feet? Where are my arms? I'm now leaning on my desk. I can feel where I am. I have to be able to. I've just seen a jay fly past by the window. That also will have a body schema where its wings are and so on. In order to move and touch things and everything, you need this constantly, rapidly updated body schema. That's what the TPJ is doing. And so it makes perfect sense that when that is disturbed in some way, um, then, then you can feel that your, your body is kind of different. It's bigger or smaller or whatever, or you've popped right out of it because your brain can no longer keep the, um, the schema that the brain holds in line with all the input coming in from your eyes and ears and touch and so on. So that's the gist. And that's why in the end, I called the book Seeing Myself because I think now I can understand better what it means to feel that I am embodied and, and, and the relationship between being aware and embodiment. And of course, you get that in meditation as well. Um, the Zen tradition in which I've trained for 40 years is very keen on, on um, remember the body. You know, it's not, us Westerners are so much in the head thinking all the time, you know, ah, remember embodiment. So and that's the way had, uh, And I know you do a lot of meditation. Have you had any out-of-body experiences while you meditate? Yes, but nothing like that dramatic. I mean, that was particularly... Nothing like that first one. No. I mean, I've had brief experiences of feeling that I'm above and, um, and looking down. I've had experiences of seeming to drift away in various ways. I've had experiences of becoming larger and smaller both with meditation and with psychedelic drugs. Um, mm. be becoming very, very large and very small, I did both of those in that long experience and subsequently have had in different circumstances. But nothing like that. And I think possibly that can only happen once. I mean, it, it requires it requires a certain circumstances and it requires a certain ignorance. And I think this is so in many of the experiences that people have through meditation. Mm. They're never the same, you know? Once you've experienced yeah. a certain kind of click or change in your way of seeing the world, um, it may it, it go away. Uh, you may not keep it there, but it will never come back in the same way. Um, you move on and you, you move on and, and the experiences change. Yeah. And that seems to be a, a circumstance of near-death experiences. It's, it's a life-changing event that, that oh, yes. happens with somebody. Um, Without a, what, is, what are the differences, in your opinion, between a, a near-death experience and an out-of-body experience? Is one a subset of the other? Are Precisely. Are there significant similarities? 
You are precisely right. One is a subset of the other. A typical near-death experience, and of course they vary a lot and there isn't any such thing as the NDE, but a typical NDE will be um, a tunnel, usually a dark tunnel with a light at the end and then going into the light, although you may have the light without the tunnel, uh, then an out-of-the-body experience and seeing, very often seeing the body, but not always, sometimes just going off somewhere else. Um, then you may have a life review, but that's actually very rare, where the whole of your life seems to kind of be there all at once, sort of in front of you, mm -hmm. passing through your, your mind, as it were. Um, and then going, I mean, the longer the experience goes on, the more likely you are to get to these later stages, although they can be in a different order, but typically. And uh, then into other worlds where you may meet various beings and have various adventures and sometimes come to um, a, a border, a boundary, where you have to decide or some decision has to be made about whether to go back or not. I experienced all of those except for the life review including the point of having a decision, which was very weird because I wasn't near death at all. Um, but that's, right. a, that's a typical, a typical near death experience, but they can vary a lot. You know, it's not, they're not all the same. And so the OBE is, is just one part of that. Okay. That's interesting. Cause I was actually thinking almost the other way around, but I can see a lot of similarities there. Um, kind of fascinating that, that you experienced this personally and yet you still got to a point where you don't believe that the mind, the, the consciousness was actually leaving the body. You know, you, you still, you eventually ended up with the beliefs that you hold today on that. And so I find it interesting because I've spoken to other people who have an experience like that, and that leads them into a life of discovering and looking at that, quote, greater consciousness or universal consciousness beyond them. So I find it interesting that you went through this experience and yet you came out the other side believing uh, more more in a physical phenomenal experience well, than you I'm, do. And, uh, I'm not satisfied with unworkable and trivial explanations. I'm just not. Yeah. And, and I devoted my life to research to find out. Now, some of those other people have too uh, and have found out all sorts of things. But... Um, the reason, you know, for the first years after I had that experience, I was just as you have just described there. It seemed so obvious to me because I know what that experience is like. So obviously my consciousness has left my body, but you've only got to start understanding the brain. And now in the 21st century, it becomes less and less and less plausible that consciousness is some kind of separate thing that could leave. It just, it doesn't make any sense. You really have to say, if you're going, if you're going to say consciousness is something that can leave the body and survive death, then you have got to either just reject and blank out of your mind everything we know about how the brain works, or you have got to say, okay, I'm going to have a completely different theory that doesn't fit with any kind of science at all, that has um, no connection with what we, we know, and, and yet, you know, I'm going to believe in it. You know, something like um, uh, Van Lommel's um, Endless Consciousness, uh, uh, people who speak about, you know, consciousness beyond the brain and so on. And there are plenty. It's so tempting. It is so tempting because that's how it feels. But all I did was, you know, I'm a student studying psychology and physiology. I want to understand the mind and the brain and our behavior and why we do things. And I did loads and loads and loads of experiments. And it was hard. You know, it was hard to change my mind because at some point towards the end of my PhD, 
every experiment that I did on telepathy or clairvoyance or every haunted house I stayed in or every poltergeist I studied, you know, every time if I worked hard enough, I would find out what was the problem and why this was a perfectly natural and, you know, explicable phenomenon. Um, or else there just weren't any any results at all in the telepathy experiments. And, and then I tried with young children and special imagery and people who could meditate. I mean, you know, I kept on thinking, well, you know, if that doesn't work, if that doesn't work, then surely this will. And I was a tarot reader and I did experiments on tarot cards and found that they work through body language and um, uh, 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 and ordinary language and so on, not through the cards, not through any magic powers. Um and, you know, so it wore me down. There came a point when I had to say to myself, and I can remember this, it's like a flash, flashbulb memory, uh, came a point when I had to go, well, what if there just isn't any, you know, other whatever, other powers, psychic powers? What if all this occult stuff I've been learning, it's all of it, it's not true. And I was there in all my hippie clothes doing my tarot readings for my friends and whatever. I mean, I had to change my entire who I was. But that was because of evidence. And all I can say to these people who, who, you know, are absolutely convinced about their spirit leaving their body, well, yes, I have experienced it too. I know what you mean when you describe it. I believe what you describe in your stories you tell me. Um, but I just think you're wrong about the explanation. And, and I just want to say, well, sorry, I do ramble a lot, don't I? But you're asking interesting questions. Um, one more thing I would like to say it simultaneously led me to intensive training in, in Zen meditation. I, I'm not a Buddhist. I won't sign up to believing stuff, but I have gained enormously from the skills that I've been taught, the practices I've been taught mm. over 40 years. So that experience took me that way as well and, and take me to, to very disciplined observations of how the mind works. And this too leads me to very much respect subjective experience, which of course the people that you're talking about would, would be, would agree with. But I just, okay. I'm not prepared to accept a theory that's stupid and doesn't fit with what we know about the brain. And I'm sorry to say that's what you get in all these ghastly um, books about near-death experiences. Oh, you know, I went to heaven and there were these doors and there were these angels. And I, yeah, the brain is perfectly capable of, of, of producing those things when it is changing its function and all those memories are coming up and, you know, oh, ah, sorry, I can get really, really <laughs> upset about some of those books because I just say to people, for goodness sake, it's much more exciting than that. You know, you get nowhere with those theories of endless consciousness and mind beyond the brain and all of that. So you don't get anywhere. You, know, you just say it. Okay, now, well, what does that mean? Does it predict anything? Can we, can we use it in any way? Can we do anything with it? And the answer is no. And you look at brain-based and, and, and body-based and experience-based theories that we have now in science, and all the time you're thinking, oh, well, if that theory is right, then maybe we should do this. And, oh, let's test that. And, and, and you get somewhere. So, ha, sorry, I will shut up, but I hope that answers the question. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, that's, that's fascinating because it's, uh, it's true because – I know I find myself wanting to believe certain things and then you go there and I think, uh, I think very similarly to you that I get to a point where, well, that's not really leading me someplace I can continue to, to base my own beliefs in. And then I end up pulling back. But again, every time I talk to somebody like you, I, you know, I learn something new and, and it just adds more information to the, the whole thing. But yeah, I see, Good. I see exactly what you mean. The, uh, 
Is there anything else on out-of-body experiences that you want to make sure you get out there? Oh, I suppose only to say, because I'm sure that they're brain-based phenomena and natural phenomena and so on, they're still worthwhile, fun, interesting. People tend to be more sort of exploratory about their own minds when they've had such an experience. Um, and I would encourage people to enjoy them. I would also like to say, if you get one by accident and it just happens, don't be frightened. People are often frightened as I was. Oh, what if I can't get back mm. to my body? I haven't gone. <laughs> Your body's still there and it's doing fine. Uh, don't worry. Enjoy the experience. That's really my only last thought on it. And lose, lose Oh, that's great. <coughs> um, yeah, because I guess I, it can be very, very frightening there. So I can see uh, it's almost like a psychedelic experience is pulling back and not allowing yourself to, to dive into it. So yes, that, exactly. that's great advice. So in addition to this book, I, I imagine that this book is really the focus. You spent all this time writing it and, and it's getting published and uh, I mean, it's available. What, uh, but what else is in your future? Anything you want to tell us that you've got coming down the pike that you want to let us know about? Ah, yes. Well, first I'll go backwards a bit. I, I was I, I do tend to be a bit stupid and take on too much. And that mm. book, the Seeing Myself, the OBE book, I was writing mm -hmm. at the same time as the third edition of the Consciousness Textbook. I expect you read the second edition that you were talking about earlier. But the third mm -hmm. edition is now out in the UK and will within a couple of months be out in the USA. And that was an enormous job. And my daughter, Emily, uh, joined with me. And she did actually most of the work of updating it. So that is a new version which goes into, it goes into these kind of things, but much more goes into the big questions, the hard problem of consciousness and all of that. Um, and, um, and along with that, I was also doing the second edition of my very short introduction to consciousness. And I would say to anybody listening, if you don't want to read an enormous textbook, which like you said, is like a whole course, um, which is what it is, the very short introduction is small and cheap and covers the same things but obviously in a much with a much lighter touch so having done three books and i was working on them all at once i got utterly exhausted um but i'm now brewing up for a new memes book the meme machine uh, my book on memes came out in 1999 that is 20 years mm. ago this wow. year and it's still in fact um richard dawkins wrote some tweets about it he's just reread it and he wrote some wonderful tweets about it recently and said it was a deeply important book so i was dead chuffed <laughs> because he richard dawkins wow. invented the term meme um back in 1976 and the world has moved on so much i, I reread the book too i was chatting with richard dawkins about it i think we, we both reread it at the same time and um the world has changed so much and when i reread that and it's talking about how i've got two fax machines in my house and you know you think what what was a fax machine um and you know, the 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 web had been invented then but it wasn't you know it, it wasn't a, a right. very familiar concept to most people and yet many of the predictions made from meme theory just so obviously have come so come true in the intervening years and of course now we have internet memes and the whole spread of stuff and all the weird facts like like people will um, share and and forward fake news more than true news. They mm -hmm. will forward and share things that make them angry more than things that make them um, relaxed and happy. I mean, these are mimetic effects that are kind of sculpting our world today. So I must have a rest from the previous books, but that's probably <laughs> where I'm going next. <laughs> well, wonderful. I... Uh you to overexhaust yourself 
but I am excited to see these new books coming out. So I will keep an eye out for those and make sure when I see them, the Adams of the blog to the podcast, when I get it, when they're out there. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been nice talking yeah. to you. I'm sorry I couldn't talk any longer, but you can probably hear my voice is beginning to go now. So uh, I cannot. I cannot, but I absolutely respect that. And I am so grateful for your time and, and sharing your information with us. So I uh, just can't tell you how thankful I am on that. So thank you, Dr. Blackmore. Oh, it's fun to talk to you too. Thanks. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the consciousness podcast at our Twitter handle at conchcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at the consciousness podcast.com. Thank you for listening.